I go back and forth as to whether or not I want kids. Those who weren't raised Mormon probably won't understand the social urgency that tends to come with that decision that made me feel a little nervous and even frustrated by my lack of a family by the time I was in my mid-twenties. Traditionally, a Mormon or LDS boy, when he's 18, receives a certain level of priesthood, called Melchizedek priesthood, in order to serve a mission and become a missionary. Then, he goes where he is allegedly called by the Lord somewhere in the world with the exception of a select few countries for 24 months. Once those 24 months are over, the typical story is he comes back, gets married to an LDS woman, they settle down, and they very often have kids, all within their 20s. Again, that is the traditional narrative. It's not cookie-cutter, but that's typically where the Mormon stereotype comes from at least from the perspective of an outsider looking in. Super young, super white, super happy couple with a thousand kids. And I knew I wasn't going to fit that mold. I mean, I left the church during my high school college transition, but still, there was a twinge of FOMO that started to brew in me. That fear of missing out because somebody's more successful than me in certain places. So-and-so was married. Why aren't you? So-and-so bought a house. Why haven't you? So-and-so was pregnant. Why aren't you? Well, that one's a little more cut and dry, but it doesn't take away from the fact that I felt behind in life while everyone else seemed to flourish. At least when I had social media on. But after a lot of contemplation and self-reflection and occasional babysitting, I figured out the alleged real reason why I hadn't had kids yet. I didn't have the temperament for kids. And I would very much rather have no kids than have kids and be a tyrant to my children. Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home, a podcast memoir by M.K. Lott. Chapter 35, The Silent Film Project. Starting out in the film industry as the owner of your own studio is almost always rocky. Inevitably so, I might add. It'll require all kinds of innovation and outside-the-box thinking as any other business requires, but you tend to get some interesting results in gigs. One of my former employers proposed the idea to a couple of private schools, for example, that we could give their students the education that we as filmmakers and creatives wished we had when we were their ages. The ages being about 11 and under. While they were accruing their reputation as filmmakers in the Utah area, they would spend every January and February attending these schools and providing their own camcorders and laptops to let kids be movie stars, directors, crew, everything they always dreamed about doing, but never had the class or the education that would permit it on a day-to-day -day basis, or at least week to week. Originally, the responsibility of this was bestowed on the two owners, the head director and the head writer, who seemed to have gone through quite a ringer to get the job done. Following that, the responsibilities were passed on to their ideas guy and the prop merchandise master who came on a little bit later. Then, as the classes grew, so did the demand for teachers. So the head director had the idea to invite their head of marketing and sales to join in. And that's when I got the call. The head director was brilliant at staying on top of every member of his crew and making sure that everybody was kept in touch. So I suppose I knew deep down that working with kids was going to be a little unavoidable. 
In their defense, I was actually excited to be working with the team. At the time, as head of marketing and sales, most of my work was remote, and I decided deep down that it was time to actually be a part of the company. Not to mention, this was actually a great way of meeting the ideas guy. He was the only member of the company that lived in Utah that I had yet to meet, and in the best way possible, he didn't disappoint. We shared the same passion and the same drive for starting new companies and coming up with new projects to get things rolling. So every time we drove in his Prius down to the schools, we had a good 30 to 45 minutes of creative chatting that you can't really get from anyone else. As we pulled into the parking lot of the first school, all I could imagine in my head was a kindergarten cop situation where the kids would be absolutely wild animals and I would tell them to shut up and thank God that I became a hypnotherapist where the hottest industry trend is a maternal tone. Never said which age group I worked with. The moment we pulled into the parking lot, I got immediate flashbacks of my time in middle school. Yes, these kids were younger than that, but I remember the layout of that school and how uniform, pun definitely intended, it was. Due to, to use the words of my 10-year-old self, a lack of crowd control, my mom enrolled me in a private school where the education was the best in the country, if not in the state. The supplies were given to us by the school, so no back-to-school shopping. The teacher's curriculum was almost always something new and exciting, like learning sandblasting in art class and archery in PE, and the experiences were top-notch. But the kids... The kids were goddamn gremlins. Those were the memories that began to brewing as I white-knuckled my bag with my laptop in one hand and the case for the camera batteries in the other. The ideas guy led the way through the secretary's offices to pick up our name tags and get signed in and out into the hallways. The walls were filled to the brim with the pictures and essays and sculptures of all the children studying soundly in the classrooms. I couldn't help but think about the one time I had my story posted on the walls and how I thought I could be a writer when I was seven. And it just made me realize how important it was to make sure that if I didn't have the patience to work with kids, I would at the very least do what I could to give them hope that they could use their creativity in the future. We were something of an elective class to these kids, so we had to wait until the first part of the day was done and they would open the doors to us. We went through our script, our game plan, and how we would establish ourselves to make sure that this was as smooth of sailing as possible. Once our plan was locked and loaded, we would mingle with some of the other elective instructors. One taught the kids dance, one taught them bongo drums, one taught them fight choreography. You heard me, fight choreography. But I was most intrigued, not by the fight choreographer, but by the sleight-of-hand magic instructor, who explained to us that the beard he had that was slowly beginning to cover up his poker card and dice pattern bow tie was required for his seasonal occupation as a mall Santa. Something I couldn't help but entertain as a side hustle if retirement got too boring for me. Finally, the doors were open, and we had the opportunity to meet the kids. The ideas guys stepped up while the prop director and I watched and listened intently while unpacking everything. Some were quietly listening, some were checked out, others were chatting not so quietly with each other. So it was a pretty typical classroom. Thankfully, the responsibility of disciplining the kids was left to the original teacher who would quietly clean his 3D printer and read about frogs while we got the job done. The whole spiel as to why and what we were doing was we wanted to teach the kids how to tell a story within restrictions. Their job 
was to work in teams and make a silent film with the restrictions they had and by fulfilling the positions that would normally take place on a film set. The ideas guy, the prop merch master and I would all supervise and take on the roles of producers while the kids got to choose who was director, who were the actors, who was going to hold the camera, etc. Now, you learn a lot about people by the way they run teams and by the way they participate in teams. The ideas guy had everyone in an orderly manner, finished early and making paper airplanes by the end of the project. The prop merch master made sure that everything was properly explained and lined out, but had a few team members that were a little too... power hungry, as they wanted a little bit of everything. As for me, I tried to go for an intervene when necessary approach, so I let the kids do most of the things on their own and assisted them when they needed it, or if I needed to bring the scale down a little bit. That's how we went from trying to figure out how to make a Godzilla movie in a month to making a movie about hide-and-seek that takes place over the course of five years and somehow has themes of love and betrayal. Do you see what happens when you let kids run with their imaginations? It's fucking awesome! And this had gone on, like I said, for a few weeks, and by the time that filming was done and we were on track to editing and finishing the film, I suddenly realized that my loose, cool, substitute teacher approach like I thought it was going to be became a negligent, wine-happy, soccer mom, do-whatever-you-want approach. When I brought up the footage, I think the kids thought the film was going to be done and solely leave it on my shoulders to finish. In their defense, we didn't really designate the role of editor, the guy who organizes and finalizes all the best clips into a cohesive story, so I put the clips together into a rough estimate, along with choosing some songs that were public domain, aka within budget, and I asked all the kids to vote for their favorite track to use for specific scenes. Half of the kids were still engaged, and oddly the most excited they had ever been during the whole project. The other half just wanted to go outside and use it as an excuse to have a second recess, so a lot of that session was just learning how to reel both them and me back in. See, when I'm in the middle of a confrontational situation, naturally, when it comes to fight or flight, I freeze and it quickly turns into something of a flatlining in my head, and the older I get, the more I realize that it's usually the worst of both worlds. It was the last thing I needed, so no matter how rowdy or how childish the children were, go figure, I had to steady my own waves and make sure that despite all the overload I was experiencing, I could just be present and get the job done. Thankfully, the movie was completed, and I submitted the final cut to the school plenty of days before the kids' premiere. I know it seems a little harsh of me, now that I think about it, to think whether or not the movie made by roughly half a dozen children was a success, but I wouldn't really entertain that idea if we didn't watch the previous short films made by the previous year's students first. It was very clear who the producer was, because they were filled to the brim with creativity from making a Power Rangers type movie out of cardboard to using different filters for different moods and tones and I took note of my team kicking themselves and wishing that they had done something a little more grand or creative. And I watched them wishing that I had tied them a little closer together the closer we got to the end of the project. They were super happy and excited and really eager to try to make a movie and then time went on and suddenly they lost interest in the vision and they started regretting a lot of their choices. A lot of that 
is part of the creative process where you look at something and you think, why the hell didn't I do that? Or, oh my God, why the hell did I do that? But for the kids to realize that and see them get discouraged, I found myself thinking that I didn't actually do my job to help guide the kids into doing a project that they were proud of. But as that project came to an end, we were soon on to the next school that had a significantly larger classroom. But because there were only two kids who were interested in directing, we decided to split the class directly in two, which was like ditching any and all knives during steak night and just using your molars and your best prayers. Two weeks in, and the kids were suddenly battling for who could be director still and how they wanted to change the story entirely. Meanwhile, the prop merch master and I who had teamed up had to play negotiator to make sure the script didn't change this far into production and we had to play parents more than producers on the children and of course on myself, which I actually feel like is a real situation that happens on real film sets. And the battle raged on every week between keeping the children on course and trying to keep our shit together. He worked on the blocking, aka where people would be in certain shots, and making sure the kids were prepped and ready to go while I set up the camera work and the prop work while talking with the kids quietly and trying to keep rapport high. And this far into the second project, I mean, only God knew what happened to the ideas guy trying to handle a group that big by himself. Just kidding, he was fine. Just really, really stressed. So much so, when it was my turn to drive, I took everyone to Maverick and tried to cheer them up with a protein snack break. But finally, we made it to the editing phase, aka post-production, and this was the group at its absolute chaotic. If it's tricky to juggle all these kids when they have jobs or roles, it's a nightmare when they have to share one job. The editing station comprised of only one laptop while everyone huddled in and took turns shortening and trimming clips together. They swarmed together like flies on shit, to the point where furniture was being tipped over and computers were being scooted and just barely toppled off desks. And I sat back by the whiteboard, keeping track of the list of who was going next and who had to chill the hell out for another two minutes. It was honestly my way of contributing, but not getting sucked into the heat of the moment and either freezing or losing my mind. And once I wrapped up the list of those who needed to edit, I turned and saw a boy who had just gone, and he sat over in the corner by himself with his hands fidgeting together, his eyes wide, and his breathing shortening by the second. And immediately, I knew what those patterns meant. So I put everything on hold, and I carefully pulled up a chair next to him and sat down. You okay, man? I asked. I, I get really, really anxious when everyone is just all around me and yelling and just being really loud, he said while trying not to hyperventilate. I suddenly thought about how I started to freeze while finishing the last project, and the same freezing that would happen when I would work in restaurants during lunch and dinner times, and when I would host parties in high school that got out of hand, and when I tried group sports or team projects or anything of that kind. It made it really easy for me, as I grew up, to just retract and think, I could do it myself because everyone else stresses me out, so get out of my way. And with those thoughts, my face softened, and I relaxed more into my chair. Yeah, I said. 
I get that. I kind of wish I was home riding my bike with my dad, he continued. Yeah? I asked with a polite smile. Do you ride your bike with him a lot? Yeah, we usually do it every day. That's cool. Is riding your bike relaxing? Yeah, I like spending time with him. He told me he was going to get me new tires because the other ones lost their traction. And he then continued his story about his love for riding his bicycle with his dad and immediately his state started to change. While one of the students, who just finished, came over and listened patiently. He didn't come in with a planned narrative, but was just genuinely interested in the conversation. And then another student came over, and then another, until finally, we had managed to split the class almost perfectly in two. Half was waiting in line and learning how to edit with the prop merch master, and the others were having a conversation that I regulated like a group therapy session. And there was a better sense of flow from there on out all the way to the end of the premiere where we got up on stage and bowed with the kids. The pro merch master felt like he had less of a swarm around him, which allowed him to instruct a little more clearly and think a little more clearly. And I had developed enough of a rapport and relationship with each kid that I managed to know almost all the kids by name and know for the most part how to work with them on each individual level. I could work with a hyperactive crazy kid who was tipping over chairs and, <laughs> and desks and who would demand round five on his popcorn while we were watching short films and cut him off just as easily as I could give seconds to the two foot six angel who asked so meekly my heart melted. I always wondered why teachers seemed to pick favorites but now I completely understand because that popcorn distribution that I mentioned happened within like five seconds of each other. So the hyperactive kid comes up and he goes, may I please have some more? You know, just basically Ace Ventura with cargo pants, right? And I go, no, dude, listen, you're on your fifth. Everybody's just starting your seconds. Go take a lap. You're cutting up. I'm cutting you off. Ugh, fine. And then he would walk around, do like half a lap, and then he would come back, you know, just the usual crap. The other kid comes up, excuse me, sir. Um, may I please have some more popcorn? And he would hold the cup with both hands, and I would just look at him and be like, of course you can, you goddamn angel. Now, originally, I wanted to tell that story as some way, shape, or form of learning to be patient with kids or an example of how to de-escalate a situation or distribute the workload fairly. But I think I started to realize more and more as I was writing this, that empathy is a crucial but positive side effect of hardship. Now, granted, hardship can mean something different for everyone. It should mean something different for everyone. Because, for example, the loss of a pet may not be that big of a deal to a soldier who just got back from war, but they're still both traumatic experiences because of the relation to the person that experienced it. And I'm not pausing by any means that those experiences I listed previously were traumatic events, but they were events that triggered a fight-or-flight response in me as a kid who didn't know how to translate or interpret that very well, let alone handle or manage it. And over time, I came to value stillness, and calm and tranquility, and being able to apply that within high-stress situations. I'm not perfect at it, but 
I'm definitely better than I was before. So when I began to see that same reaction in the form of a panicking kid who was doing what I would have done at the exact same age, it allowed me to slow down and match him at his pace to bring him to a calmer state. Almost like, if I were to speak in metaphors, being lost at sea so you can become someone else's ferryman. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home. I hope this episode leaves you better than it found you. And if you're in need of some help with your anxiety, feel free to reach out on Instagram at mklotprohobbyist or on LinkedIn at mklot, and I would love to help in any way I can. Thank you as always, and until next time, here's to finding your way.